This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Live from Indianapolis. Not the geographical Indianapolis. But rather the metaphorical Indianapolis. The platonic ideal Indianapolis. Which is probably somewhere in Manitoba. The Indianapolis that hosts Gen Con Online. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Time travel. Tradecraft. Cinema. Occultism. And of course, food. Although most Renaissance fairs aren't happening in 2020... You can still bring all the excitement to your table. Minus the jousting and roast turkey legs. During the month of September, our friends at Atlas Games are offering their card game Renfair at 40% off with code Pantaloons. In Renfair, you play characters who want to have the best historically accurate costume at the fair but lack the funds to do it. Earn coins by competing challenges, then buy choice items for your own costume. Thwart your opponents by playing clashing garment items on them. Short pantaloons and a sequined halter top? Egad! Stackable transparent costume cards let you see your character's outfit and your points too. Renfair plays two to four people ages 13 plus in about an hour. Learn more about Renfair or order your copy at atlas-games.com slash Renfair. That's fair with an E. Hip, hip, huzzah! So, hey, everybody. Welcome uh, to this very strange, perhaps nearly live, perhaps live uh, episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Uh, We're making our debut on Twitch uh, this time around. And so uh, let us start out with the traditional uh, thank you to all of our uh, Patreon backers, if uh, any of you are gathered in the uh, chat, please take this opportunity to give yourselves a big old pat on the back uh, for keeping this show going, keeping it alive. Uh, so we very much appreciate your uh, patronage. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to do the traditional nerd trope uh, in which Ken is presented with a nerd card and a trope card and must uh, therefore improvise upon them both. But while we are doing that, if you have a question to pose to us, we would like you to uh, post it in the Twitch chat. Then uh, some sort of magical uh, sprite or a zephyr will uh, transmit uh, those uh, questions to us, and uh, uh, we will uh, read them. And uh, Ken, do you have the the, uh, the the doc filed up so that we can spell one another? I do up? have the doc file up. I have okay. the doc. It is up. Awesome. My zephyr receptivity system is on point. It's on fleek, I think, as we say on Twitch. As we say on Twitch. Okay, so at this point, it's time for us to reach to the Nerd Trope deck, which was uh, made for us by Caliph Tate. Those of you who have listened to the show before know that there's one nerd card, one trope card. Those of you who have been listening for a long time uh, know that we're beginning to repeat things a bit, and uh, familiar things are starting to crop up. I have created a Ringer Nerd card and a Ringer Trope card, just in case the first thing drawn has already been used. So the nerd is Otto von Bismarck. Have we done Otto von Bismarck? I don't think we've done Bismarck. I think Bismarck is new to us. Bismarck is fresh. And let's reach into the trope card for... Oh, wait a minute. We've done this one. We've definitely done alchemy. Oh, yeah. So the ringer is Gorgon. Gorgons. The ringer Gorgons, everybody. is Gorgons. Otto von Bismarck und the Gorgons. All right. The Gorgons, as we all know, are a triad 
of uh, sister monsters. They are the spawn of the Earth goddess, Gi, or the Earth Titanus Rhea. Stories conflict, as is, I suppose, natural when researching something gets you turned into stone. They had that capacity to do so. Uh, one of them, Medusa, was uh, mo- was half mortal through some bizarre uh, system, and the other two were uh, were, were titanesses or, or, or demi goddesses or, or immortal in the other way. So uh, we have a trinity of mysterious women, one of whom can go about uh, the world and create statues by looking at you. So obviously, once you start thinking about that question, uh, and you have, on the other hand, Otto von Bismarck, statesman, agriculturalist, warmonger, and uh, mustache wax pioneer, you have a lot of possibilities uh, for him. His goal in all of this is to unify and magnify Germany under the iron heel of Prussia, and specifically the king of Prussia, Wilhelm, later to become the emperor of Prussia, Wilhelm. And Bismarck, in operating this wise, preferred to leverage his opponents against each other. So he would uh, bring Austria, his ultimate target, uh, in on the war against Denmark, for example, and then brought Italy and France, diplomatically at least, in against Austria when it came time to shut down Austria, and then brought everybody in against France. So it was was, uh, quite a a balancing act that Bismarck uh, provided, and then when he became elder statesman of of, uh, Europe, uh, attempted to create a triple alliance between uh, Germany, Austria, and Russia. And when we say triple alliance, oh, that's right, we've got another triple. We've got three uh, Gorgons. So Bismarck is obviously, in some fashion or other, uh, stumbled upon the spur of the Medusa. And uh, maybe that's connected to the fact that he managed to get a Hohenzollern heir made uh, king of Romania, uh, attempted to get a Hohenzollern heir made king of Greece, another possible Gorgon uh, spot. Uh, I think the compromise was they made a Battenberg. So uh, one of the princes of uh, Westphalia or uh, the, the Rhineland, uh, king of Greece instead. So Bismarck is is oiling away, attempting to get the secrets of the Medusas, the power of the Medusas. He realizes the Medusas, uh, since two of them are immortal, they will give him a great power. And since uh, one of them can go around in the world, that lets him inveigle and undermine things. So he has a goal. This would be sort of a, a Tim Powersy archaeology magic sort of setting. Uh, he's hunting down the Medusas. He's got one of them penned up uh, under the uh, uh, Sans Souci Palace in uh, Berlin. Uh, another one possibly gets shipped to Russia, obviously the most important of the Allies, the one that he's not going to start a war with, because that would be very, very stupid for Germany to start a war with Russia. And the third one, the, the half-mortal one, goes to Austria-Hungary, the half-mortal empire that he is attempting to control and betray. And uh, Austria-Hungary, of course, is indeed controlled and betrayed. Uh, the thing, as we know, that keeps uh, Medusa in line is mirrors. Uh, perhaps it is a coincidence that he forces the signing of the uh, peace treaty at the Franco-Prussian War in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles. Uh, maybe that's just a coincidence. Maybe uh, nothing's going on there that he's keeping um, uh, the Medusa, the, the half-mortal Gorgon, from interfering in, in the final play. Uh, but 
that is obviously what his, what his approach is, is, is to uh, harness the powers of these Medusae. And we can assume that he has, uh, archaeologically excavated them. Uh, Wilhelm, of course, uh, gets on fire with, uh, sponsoring German archaeology. Wilhelm II, his grandson, uh, even more so, uh, sending out Max von Oppenheim into, uh, the, the, the hills above Syria to dig up, um, lost cities. The lost city of Gozer, not to bring in a whole nother IP, but it is the lost city of Gozer and start shipping tablets and all manner of things back to Kaiserine Imperial Germany, which by now is sitting on the Medusa and then through, uh, what do you, what do you call it? Carelessness manages to splinter the Medusa. And now one of the Medusas is in the hands of the Russians. It is, is up to activity. So there is a ongoing attempt. And I think that we can certainly say that it is possibly a rivalry between the heirs of Bismarck after, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II replaces, uh, Bismarck as, uh, Chancellor of Germany and, uh, with his own creature, uh, and then offends Russia that, uh, after Bismarck, the heirs of Bismarck, uh, uh the Kaiser, uh, Wilhelm II's men, Max von Oppenheim, et cetera, uh, dueling against the Russians, uh, obviously who are working with the French. And again, we've already discussed, I believe in this, uh, in the show, uh, that Papist, the great ritual magician is over in Russia, helping out the czar with all of his little problems, such as, oh, I don't know, maybe bringing him the recipe for a magic mirror, which obviously Papist would have because of his access to various church documents, because uh, the magical mirror of antiquity built by the great prophet Magus and poet Virgil, no relation, would have been accessible in Rome. So this explains the perhaps bizarre attention to Italy paid by both uh, the German and the French uh, secret polices. I think you can you can build a lovely, a little less overt than our standard nerd trope game of of hunting around for magical mirrors that may contain the image of the Medusa in such wise that you can uh, redirect uh, the poor Austro-Hungarian Empire. We have, of course, in Austria, this is the time when the heirs to the throne are suddenly being uh, caught in compromising situations, committing suicide, uh, possibly mysteriously turning into statues. We don't know, but there's a lot of statues in this era. There's degrees of uh, triplicity and maidens that are popping up. And I will just adduce maybe as, as our final trail off to nowhere, uh, the <laughs> Rhine maidens in Wagner that uh, begin the story of the Rheingold, uh, that there's a lot of, of triple ladies on stage at Bayreuth, which again is uh, encouraged by the King of Bavaria, Mad King Ludwig, who's attempting possibly to resist Bismarck and not be taken over. But then, oh, that's weird. He's found uh, mysteriously dead in his enormous palace, almost as though he's, he's drowned, but in an inch of water, almost as though his lungs were somehow petrified. Who can say, Robin? I certainly can't say, but I think it, it creates a, a lovely Edwardian backstory for your lovely steampunk spy magic game. Don't you think? I, I do think. Well, uh, this is the point where if we're all in the same uh, room together, and I think not all of us would fit in any room that we have had, that uh, mm-hmm. we uh, we would hear an excited round of uh, applause. So it's not so much that, Ken, that you and I are not live at this moment, but rather that we are sadly uh, cut off uh, from our beloved uh, audience. We're and remote. Must, must merely assume the susurrus of acclaim uh, that uh, greeted your uh, nerd trope. Hey, 
Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the Underworld secrets for 13th Age, including... The lands of the Underworld, the Underland, the kingdoms of the Hollow Realms, and what lies within the deeps. The mighty dwarven city of Forge. The domains of the Silverfolk Elves. The threats of Malice, the Drowfort. And the four kingdoms of the Mechanical Sun. Forgotten Gods, the Gnome Academy of Magic, Monsters, Magic Treasure, and more. For for a limited time, get 10% off in print or PDF at the Pelgrain store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age. Voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgrainPress.com. So this is the point uh, where we switch to the Q&A format of uh, Ken and Robin Live. And uh, uh, Ken... I guess I should say something at some point. Uh, why don't you ask me the first question? I will ask you the first question. Uh, the first question comes from Knight of Hagen, asking, During quarantine, I gained a new appreciation for the versatility of cauliflower. Have either of you scratched the surface of its many uses? Uh, Robin? So I've uh, been a cauliflower appreciator uh, since childhood. As a kid... It was one of the few vegetables that I was willing to eat. Wow. Now, uh, the classic way, of course, it would be uh, prepared for me in the 60s and 70s in central Ontario is it would be boiled. But now that I'm the cook, I've done various different things uh, with uh, cauliflower. The, the classic, slightly advanced Ontario thing is to uh, cover it with mustard and then a layer of cheese and then cook it in its entirety. You roast it in the oven. That's not something that I uh, do a lot. I'm more likely to uh, put them on the grill uh, with uh, some tandoori paste on them. Uh, I have not yet uh, investigated the uh, the world of cauliflower crust pizza. Uh, neither of us has a gluten allergy, so I've never bothered with, uh, with that. And I have to say that any of my attempts to do the cauliflower in the Instant Pot has been uh, kind of disappointing, that uh, you do not want a soggy cauliflower. And, of course, uh, the Instant Pot makes everything moist. Ken? I will say that my mashed cauliflower is amazing. It is certainly it's amazing when you know that it was cauliflower, not potatoes. It, and it's remarkably simple. You take your, your cauliflower florets, you steam them, then you dump them into the pot that you is all heated up from having uh, steamed them in. Uh, you obviously dump the water out. You put in butter, you put in salt, a little garlic, a little pepper, whatever it is you want, some milk, and then you take your immersion blender, the greatest kitchen tool ever invented by man, and you blend the hell out of them until you have reached your ideal consistency for mashed whatever, and it's astonishing. I mean, you you uh, you ideally you want to cook the garlic and the butter at the bottom of the pot before dumping in the uh, the cauliflower, but that's kind of just a way to make the garlic bloom. It's not even really necessary for the cauliflower. The cauliflower contains all the love that you need. It stands up to gravy, just like a mashed potato ought to. It's really, it was a game uh, enhancer. I don't want to say a game changer, because eating something mashed with gravy on it is old 
generation game, but it, uh, it brought a new player onto the field in an exciting way. And, uh, I've not really, I've, I've occasionally buy those, uh, packets of cauliflower rice when I think I'm making a stir fry that would go really well with cauliflower. So something with a, a strong meaty flavor, uh, I, I might do a cauliflower rice, but I don't, I don't have a, a ricer. And so I don't rice my cauliflower. That's just what I do. Robin. Uh, I think Robin may have frozen up. Uh, the Toronto internet is, of course, you know, just held up by string and beavers. So we have to see what happens from there. But I will go on to the next question. Uh, the question from RateNef, uh, has this Gen Con been a better experience for you than the physical variety? I will say that in many ways, this Gen Con has been really annoying in a different way than the physical Gen Con because... I'm on these panels with my good friends. I don't get to see them. I don't get to go to bars with them. Obviously, I'm missing crowds like uh, a heroin addict misses the needle right now because I love going out in, in crowds of, of strangers and doing things, uh, bars especially, perhaps. But, you know, any situation like that. So having something that basically is, hey, remember all that stuff you actually can't do right now is sort of annoying. But on the flip side, I think we're getting... You know, certainly we we're able to fit more people into the panel room, which is good. And uh, I like a Gen Con where I can go home to my wife and cat when I'm done with it. It's not not our cat, obviously, my cat, Virgil, when I'm done with it. I, I think that that's, that's a terrific innovation, and they should try to make that happen at all Gen Cons, ideally by moving it to Chicago. That's my that's my take on uh, Ratenef's question. Our next question, as we just move through, waiting for uh, the uh, nice man from Toronto, Power and Light. What kind of medicine is really being made from alien DNA? And that's a question from Walls Fao. I think Robin is rejoining us, but I will begin by saying that any of your medicines that mess with your viral uh, response, I'll bet is aliens. Cause I think aliens come in virus form, not in bacteria form because they got that hard protein shell to survive the travel through interstellar space. Bacteria would just die on a meteor, but viruses are, are, are all over the place. So I think that any antiviral and certainly any retroviral is probably made with alien DNA scraped off the, the Roswell kids um, uh, or maybe from the Martians in 1898. I'm not, I'm not the expert here. Robin may have thoughts on the alien DNA, or uh, may want so, to. Uh, so here I am. I'm uh, my. I lost my main internet connection. So I'm. I'm uh, using data for this, people. That's how much he loves you. That's how much I love you. Uh, so the uh, the answer, I think, is uh, clearly Ambien, because yeah. of course that gives you that strange uh, alien world that you uh, uh, morph into, and uh, therefore, you know, it's sort of a, a portal to uh, their dimension. And uh, I think basically it, it makes you more readily available to be uh, studied uh, if you're on Ambien. And uh, there's nothing aliens like more than to sort of swoop over an aircraft up in the uh, up in the sky and uh, see how many people on it are on Ambien. And I think probably, you know, these days, uh, they're much more sophisticated. They probably can just, if you're on Ambien uh, and you're in a plane, they can uh, just sort of suck up whatever information they uh, they desire from you. I think they have an app now. Yeah, I think so. That's, uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, so the next question is, how can we get some extra benefit from virtual games or conventions uh, versus real world ones? So I would start out by saying that I think one of the benefits of, of uh, virtual is that People focus up more uh, because they have to try harder to uh, receive uh, information from each other. Uh, they are therefore 
you get more done in a session. Uh, people are more conscious about uh, giving uh, space to one another, and it uh, tends to be more compressed. And therefore, you can play for a shorter period of time, which is also good because you're almost undoubtedly in a less comfortable physical environment. I've found that depending on your virtual tabletop, you get a more granular response out of your uh, out of your foes in a in a fight scene. Uh, normally, you roll for initiative for all the bad guys, or maybe for the dragon and for the goblins. But on roll twenty, for example, you can roll initiative separately for all the bad guys, and it makes the the, the fight scenes more uh, fluid and I think entertaining. Then, oh, by an odd coincidence, everybody goes on a twenty one. Great that. That, that feels broken up and, 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 and chunky in a way that a, a virtual table initiative doesn't. And you really wouldn't spend the time to roll, you know, 40 dice or, or 15 dice for initiative, but you can easily click that little initiative button 15 times. So I think it, it, it can make uh, tactical combats a, a little bit richer. So uh, hit us with the next question, Ken. Jeff Carr's beloved, uh, I believe, beloved Patreon backer Jeff Carr's, they should have been we should be knowing if they're Patreon backers. I hope you're all Patreon backers. Beloved Patreon backer Jeff Cars asks, if you had to write a trail setting, Trail of Cthulhu setting, in a time and place that neither of you have, where and when would it be? Robin, and I'm, I'm going to right now say, we're counting Yellow King, so you can't say Belle Epoque Paris. <laughs> so a trail setting that we haven't had before. Well, technically, trail is 30s. So I suppose I would have to do Canada in the 30s. Canada has just sort of experienced its awakening as a separate country by its participation in uh, World War I. Uh, so there might be all manner of uh, horrors and certainly trauma uh, brought uh, back from there. It is uh, dark times in, uh, in Quebec, uh, which is uh, sort of the early... Uh, mob days in Quebec are, are starting up in uh, in Montreal, and uh, there's all sorts of you know you can have your Ogopogos and your uh, your Sasquatches and give them all different sort of uh, mythosian uh, elements. So uh, we are used to thinking of uh, my native land as uh, somewhat bland and boring, and so it might be fun to uh, make it horrible. Ken? Well, I mean, I've pitched two different trail books. I think probably at various Gen Cons by now. Uh, one of them would be entitled Deathless China and would be set in China in the 1930s. And the other would be uh, Bloodhounds of Moscow, which is the next in the Hounds metonymic. And that would be uh, playing uh, NKVD investigators who discover the Cthulhu mythos and realize that the last thing they want to do is tell Lavrenti Beria about this, but that the act of magic and um, sorcery being counter-revolutionary will also get them killed. So it's a fun, not fun at all, it's a terrifying tightrope to walk, and basically it's the game in which your characters have just as much a chance of being purged as they do of uh, being eaten or being driven insane. So I think that I think that, that would be a, a, an interesting setting. Moscow in the 30s is a bizarre... Uh, I mean, you talk about your your Mordor's Moscow in the 1930s is is Mordor. It's 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 a it's a nightmare town all the way through. You could add if you wanted to a little Dreamhounds uh, tie in, and of course, since they're excavating Russia's supplies of old books and sending them to be sold in uh, Britain and America for hard cash, even a Bookhounds tie in could happen there. I, I think it's a I think it's a strong you know dramatic setting. There's a lot of things to do, and I think you would just play it as an intentionally short game that would last until your characters are all 
uh, purged or otherwise gone, that it would sort of lean into the fatalism of uh, mythos play. So next we have a, do you all mark the nerd trope cards uh, when you use them? And uh, the answer is uh, perhaps we ought to have, but we don't. So we're relying on our own faulty, often somewhat sleep-deprived states of mind in order to recall if we've uh, done uh, something before. Let's just skip to the next question, because, Ken, you, your answer would be the same. Robin doesn't mark that. Yeah, my answer is Robin has the nerd trope cards. Yes. Ken, <laughs> this question is from Fadron. If I may do a time machine question, what hideous flat pack future was avoided by your sabotage of the designs of the Swedish warship Vasa that sank on its mating voyage and is preserved in a Stockholm museum? Ken, are you familiar with the Vasa? I am very familiar with the Vasa. I have actually been in that museum, which is very much as if Boston had a museum dedicated to Bill Buckner's missed catch. Let's going to take the most spectacular failure in our city's history and make a museum to it. Uh, It's quite a thing. The Vasa is just ludicrously insane looking. There's, you know, sculptures and figureheads and nonsense of all sorts. And of course it was top heavy uh, i think mostly because it was oversheeted might have been the sculptures might have been the sculptures but i think it was just that the the mast and sail ratio was wrong and yes as as mentioned it sailed about 20 minutes uh, out of uh, its slip rolled over and sank and the vasa uh, basically was the um attempt by the swedish to dominate the baltic sea and at the time they were attempting to do it to scare off uh, Denmark and to scare off the other uh, German powers, the Hansa powers of Northern Germany, it would become apparent that the persons they should have been intimidating were the Russians. Uh, if the Vaza had survived and if the Vaza had uh, been the first in a line of uh, Swedish capital ships, uh, they could have easily turned the, the Baltic into a Swedish lake, which would have meant at the very least no Peter the Great and no uh, St. Petersburg because those are on the Baltic. That changes Russia's orientation very much to being a continental power as opposed to a European power. And if you think Russia is a picnic when it's trying to be European, you should try it when it's given up on being European. This is the country that put Ivan the Terrible on its stamps now, much less, you know, would have done so then. They've never been ashamed of their past as the bully boys of the Mongol Empire. And uh, they're even less ashamed if they don't have to pretend to speak French and let philosophes come to St. Petersburg. So it's not the hideous flat pack future of Sweden. It's the hideous armor pack future of Muscovy that is being uh, prevented by rolling the Vasa over and allowing Russia a window onto Europe so that it can intermittently behave like a civilized power. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive Through. Next question is from Eric M. Paquette, who asks, What are good foods to eat during Gen Con Online and other virtual conventions? Robin, what do you recommend? Well... So essentially, uh, we're heavily booked doing uh, panels and things with rather reasonably tight slots uh, between them. So the chance to actually cook a full, lovely, relaxed meal is uh, off the table, just as getting any decent food during exhibit hall hours is. Yeah. So my equivalent of these quickly scarfed down pizza slice from the from the vendors in the uh, foyer, because if you're working the hall, you don't even really necessarily have time to go to the food prep talks. The, the equivalent of that is just I'm doing frozen dinners, uh, and I'm doing them quickly in the Instant Pot, because it's a little uh, warm around here. And uh, so last night we had pork and chive dumplings. Tonight, I believe there's some pierogies uh, on the menu in the hour I have between the uh, Black Book launch and uh, the 8 p.m. horror uh, role-playing masterclass, which we'll be doing on this very same Twitch channel. Uh, so good is is still not the operative word, but rather uh, efficient, <laughs> yeah. available. Yesterday, between panels, I had a deli sandwich delivered from a deli in my neighborhood, from Medici. Uh, it was an Arrabbiata sandwich. It was delicious. And like an idiot, I ordered French fries just because I missed them so very much. And sure enough... Guess what? They were they were greasy and cold, just like they're not supposed to be at all, but how all delivery French fries have been. So really, that was very much like Indianapolis. It was a real a real uh, throwback. And I will say that I discovered that um, if you already have a packet of uh, locks in your fridge, you can scramble three eggs and eat a packet of locks in about eight minutes. And that is good time. And it's all protein. So scramble three eggs and eat a packet of locks and just say, I'm at the, I'm at the convention. I, I don't have time for a vegetable. I don't have time for anything. So the next question is who, which is the least used Gorgon? <laughs> oh my God. Um, I think it's Uriel. I think Uriel. Isn't Uriel, Uriel because, one of the Gorgons. Yeah. Because the Medusa has petrifying gaze and snake hair. Uh, so has brass hands and sharp fangs and snake hair. And Uriel has snake hair. Yeah. It's like Uriel is like, and also Aquaman. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, she, she doesn't even rise to the level of Aquaman. She's like a the, uh, the, the, the walk-on character of the Gorgon. She's the Gorgon. She's like if, if Nightwing had a sidekick. Yeah. That's who, that's who she, she would she, be. She's the one that they, the characters kill off right away yeah. as they're going through the door into Gorgon Town. And that's right. why the other two Gorgons are mad at you. She's the celebrity kill. Yes. She's, she's, she's a, a Bazeppo of, <laughs> of the Gorgons. Of, of the Gorgons. Uh, a recent episode featured a delightful segment on naps. You both had different stories of the segment's origin. What is the occult <laughs> truth 
behind that discrepancy? That's a that's a deep cut uh, question from Knight of Hagen. Robin, do you have a uh, answer for that occult truth? So uh, obviously, uh, you deputed some sort of I don't want to say talpa, but this is a live show. We're obligated to say talpa to attend our uh, Pelgrane Zoom hangout and. That in, in my defense, that hangout is at the cripplingly early time of one in the afternoon. Yes. I can't be. Yeah. So your Tulpa, Ken, I got to tell you, uh, volunteered you for that segment and was quite enthusiastic about doing the segment on the, uh, excuse me while I nap this out shirt. And then I, it was uh, quite to my surprise when we uh, went about recording this, that you denied all knowledge of it because your Tulpa, Ken, said... Because uh, I questioned this, and I said, are you sure that you can do 15 minutes on this? And the Tulpa, Ken, was very, very sure indeed. So This is why Alexandra David Niel says, do not make a Tulpa as much fun as it might be. They will get you onto segments about cat-themed t-shirts. I don't think she said that in so many words, but that's what she meant. So what what other uh, unwanted obligations has the Tulpa made for you? Oh, God knows. <laughs> if, if I were the kind of person to answer my email, who can say what it's been doing? Uh, the next question uh, from uh, Bronze Phosphor is, after running many sessions in a long-running campaign, I find it hard to keep my notes organized. Do you have suggestions for how to organize one's notes and find details quickly? My my answer is rely on your ridiculous trick memory that you are currently eroding under waves of vodka. I don't know if that's a generic piece of advice. My notes are in... I can even show it. My notes are in this notebook. Look at that. And there's some campaign maps in it. And then lots of monster stats. And a couple of NPC names. These are not organized, uh, except chronologically by when I did them in the campaign. So I guess I would say I have no suggestions, except if you run your campaign either online or with a strong online component, you should be able to put them into a document of some kind, and then you could just use a search feature. And that obviously would make things fast, even if you're just as unorganized as the old analog system that I just displayed. Robin? So I go to a Google Docs system. I have two sets of Google Docs. I have my uh, secret GM only notes, and then I have uh, one uh, that is player-facing. Uh, for the current game that I'm running, I've unusually uh, determined that the uh, players should do all of the note-taking. So I set up a... Uh, I create a little graphic for each uh, scenario, which typically runs two or three sessions. And then after that, they have to uh, track everything. And the reason that works this time is that it is a largely episodic campaign without a big overarching uh, continuity. Um, for a game, a long-running game where you're interacting with the same uh, NPCs all the time, I will create a document that is uh, has subheaders. And so there's one that gives me all the uh, PCs at a glance, then uh, one with all of the uh, Game Master characters grouped by allegiance. Uh, so all of the in inhabitants of the Crossbow Clan uh, temple all appear in one block in alphabetical order, and then the uh, Zebra Fort characters are in another block in alphabetical order, and then uh, we'll have another header for places, and then uh, little bits of other miscellaneous information go in their own uh, separate bit. And so the objective there is to not have an exhaustive list of things. Um, also, uh, one of the things that I come to do in a sandbox game is uh, a, a header just for open plot hooks so that when the players are deciding, well, who are we going to go uh, poke with our spears this 
a session, you know, they can then look at the list and go, oh, we meant to institute a banking system. Were we going to do that? Or was that just Chris's idea? Or, um, hey, um, this Ogre Island, that looks like a morally acceptable thing to go and find characters to fight. Let's do that instead. And so that is much more player facing and is just sort of an attempt to have a minimal amount of uh, information to remind everybody of of, uh, who's who. Next question from Agile Miner. Uh, what is the best RPG for Greek mythology, Ken? I would say until Hellenistica comes out by me for 5th edition, uh, set in the good parts version of the 3rd century BC, I recommend, I'm, I'm a big fan of Agon by John Harper. It's a great game. It's very focused on the heroic quest and the heroic, literally, Agon, the conflict. It's uh, thematic. It's inventive in, in John Harper's way. It uh, It's a story game. It, it plays very, very strong and focused and simple. Uh, I think it's just a terrific game, and it gives you, at least for the heroic quadrant of the of Greek mythology, which, is, as, as we all know, is an enormous topic that could encompass a lot of different things. I, I'm a big fan of Agon. I think that if, if I'm picking one thing, and it's not just your favorite game, but also, you know, GURPS Greece, I'd, I'd say that Agon is a good choice. When I ran a Greek mythology uh, game, I used uh, HeroQuest. And uh, the reason I did that is that that system, which is the uh, system I designed for uh, well, now Chaosium has inherited it for uh, Glorantha. Also, it's available in a generic form. And that makes every conflict mechanically equivalent to every other conflict. So, uh, because the Greek myths have some fighting in them, you know, there's there's the war with the Titans and so forth. But after that, there is a uh, an equilibrium is reached. And occasionally there are adventures where there's physical conflict, uh, you know, Jason and the Argonauts and so forth. That just as often, uh, you there is you know, emotional or political conflict. And the uh, gods were not the main characters in this, but the lives of the uh, people in the Greek city-state were uh, frequently uh, messed about with uh, by uh, the gods. Uh, Most notably, uh, when my uh, friends uh, Lynn Hardy and uh, Richard Hardy, uh, Lynn is now of uh, uh, Chaosium, uh, she's an assistant line developer for uh, Call of Cthulhu. Uh, She was in my game group when she lived in Toronto, and so she and Rich... Uh, came in as a ringer for one night, and they showed up, asked the players what they'd all been up to, just as as if they were seeking a recap. That took all night, <laughs> and at the end of the night, they revealed uh, that they were Diana and Apollo, and they'd been sent to pass judgment on them and, and uh, levy a punishment and grant a boon. Uh, and so uh, you would not have had that brilliant moment of ringerdom in a more conventional uh, rule set. Our next question is from W. Rossi, and he asks, or they ask, what Cthulhu Mythos creature would be lurking in the New Jersey Pine Barrens, Robin? I don't want to state the obvious, but since this is a live episode, that would be the rat thing. Yeah. There would be a long, a big pile of pizza crusts that the rat things had had accumulated, some of them having commuted to New York in order to get a better uh, selection of pizza crusts, and they're creating this sort of non-Euclidean uh, pizza crust trap, basically mostly for protection from uh, from humans and from uh, other mythos entities, uh, because rat things on their own, they just want to kick back. You know, they're, they want a nice source of food, and they don't want to be captured by witches and forced to be familiars. They just want to j- just kind of relax. And so this is a rat thing autonomous zone. Yeah, and if members of the Sopranos crime family come by at some point, they just you know, pull down their uh, most obviously rat-shaped uh, statue made out of pizza crusts and uh, and just wait for them to pass. And uh, my answer is, it's a remote uh, Pine Baron 
The answer is obviously the Migo. That's who lurks in remote pine forests. We know that. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%. To the hard scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt. From the abusive warrens of the internet. To the lonely chambers of every human heart. From the toxic legacy of the Cold War. To the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. Bambo 2018 says, Robin uh, recently talked about Gamma World as a series of yearly changing games. What would set uh, his version of Gamma World apart from the canonical versions already published? Well, Ken, I'm posing the question, so you have to answer first. Right. Am I answering what's setting your version of Gamma World apart? I think you. Were, I think we want to know what your version is. All right. What my version of Gamma World? Um, my version of Gamma World... Uh, that would set things apart from the ones already published, I would probably have the Gamma World uh, future of mutants and and animal hybrids and all that fun stuff in the, in the post-Holocaust world. I think it would be interesting to have some sort of, of time travelers from the distant future or survivors that are uh, a present and sort of earth-dawning it um, so that you have a more of a culture clash and less of, and not that I don't love bog standard gamma world where radioactive rabbits discover truths about Seattle, uh, ancient Seattle, but that's standard gamma world. So I think I would enjoy a culture clash where, uh, someone is trying to make sense of what is quite clearly a nonsensical outbreak. And that the notion that something other than a nuclear Holocaust caused gamma world becomes the secret of the gamma world world, right? Robin? Yeah, I, my version of Gamma World, I think, would be to, um, and I'm, it's not clear how it would differ from other versions, but to just sort of be the game I remember it being without actually referring to it at all and <laughs> seeing uh, how much I can recreate of that feeling of, of Gamma World and uh, and then, you know, find a way to, you know, make, make it not make sense. I think if Gamma World makes sense, it's not a, a good game, but have some sort of really just sort of lean into the loopiness and try and find a way to kind of rehabilitate the uh, the post-apocalyptic campaign from its sort of survivalist. Uh, you know, maybe you have a, a, a Gamma World utopia uh, where the uh, they've created a, a better society and then uh, there's an enemy group that wants to reduce them down to the uh, to where they were before. So perhaps it's like a, a fast forward into a positive future of the Gamma World universe that is now under threat. Maybe that would be fun. Do a time jump. Yeah. Go, go ahead in the continuity. Robin, you, and by you, I think uh, they mean we, Craig Maloney means we, have mentioned before that the concept of the monomyth is terrible. 
And Craig Maloney completely agrees. If there is anything that could be redeemed and salvaged from the monomyth other than Glorantha, what would that thing be? And just Glorantha is a legitimate answer. Robin? Right. Um, and of course, the great thing about uh, Glorantha is that the, the monomyth comes in for a rubbishing in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, right. The, the, the Joseph Campbell uh, equivalents nearly destroyed the world during the Second Age by <laughs> alighting their sources and... Uh, Being jerks. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's just the, the idea that there is even anything uh, to find uh, meaningful in our lives from from myth is, you know, under under assault uh, these days due to uh, misuse by malefactors. But but that is, uh, you know, the, the basic idea is that myth is still important to us and can still be used as the basis uh, for narrative is what's left of the monomyth after you take all of the junk out of it. But once you've done that, you don't need the monomyth particularly. That's not the monomyth anymore. That, that predates Campbell. Yeah. I mean, the, the question is sort of like, hey, could we talk about uh, not to Godwin's law this, but hey, could we talk about Hitler's ecological policies? You know, yes, but that kind of misses the point. I mean, I guess the one thing that you could say could be salvaged from the monomyth is Star Wars because George Lucas read Campbell and claims to have liked it and followed it when sort of trying to plot out Star Wars. Now, of course, when George Lucas's plots hit the irrefragile reality of making movies before green screens, you got Star Wars. So I, I think it's more of the, you know, it's honored in the breach more than anything else. But I guess you could say that Star Wars, which began as an attempt at the monomyth and rapidly became an actually valuable and interesting uh, a mythic structure on its own, is, is, is the other sort of example. But I feel like Without Joseph Campbell, we still would have gotten Star Wars because we still would have had, I don't know, the Hidden Fortress and Flash Gordon. Uh, so the next question is, what famous role-playing scenario, campaign, or adventure would you like to take your home gaming group through for the very first time as if they had never played or even heard of it? I have never run, and this is not really about my gaming group, which contains one player who is uh, direly allergic to Lovecraft, but uh, this is about me. I've never run Masks of Nirothotep. I have based other campaigns that I've written on it. I have read it. I have loved it. I have admired it from afar. But it's it, it's very much like someone who doesn't know Greek praising the Iliad. You know, you you get a sense you've you've only got the translation. You don't have the pure uh the the pure thing. So I would love to run a gaming group through Masks of Nirothotep, although. I don't know that I would love to spend two years doing it. I guess that's the sort of the downside. Robin? I would uh, try The Secret of Castronegro, which I remember as being the Call of Cthulhu scenario that turned on the light bulb for me about role-playing being a story medium and see, mm. does it hold up? Is it anything like I remember it uh, being? Another option would be to do Village of Hamlet from the point of view of the villagers, and how they react when the latest bunch of D and D characters uh, shows up yeah. to uh, just poke around their houses and steal the occasional copper piece. Uh, so you could sort of do Seven Samurai uh, with the village of Hamlet, except it's not adventurers protecting you; it's the, right. the villagers themselves uh, banding together. And, and there aren't any samurai; rather, the samurai are the bad guys. Exactly. Paul Stefko asks: Is there some view on game design that you two once disagreed about? but have since come together over Robin. Do you recall us ever disagreeing about any important thing about game design? I mean, our, our disagreements are about uh, the temperature you cook uh, beef at. Yeah. That, and frankly, 
that's 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 plenty for for a friendship to be riven over forever and i think it really speaks uh to both of our strength of character that we push through that but no i think in game design you know when i became aware of robin i became aware of robin as someone who was doing everything correctly and i wanted to learn how to do that um i don't think that i've ever looked at something that robin said and said that's wrong uh, that's wrong game design um i've looked at things robin has done and said I think that there needs to be more mechanical tools at the table for other people to play it successfully, but that's not Robin is wrong. That's Robin needs to be translated a little bit. uh, And that's not the same thing at all. The next question is how can you use food and gaming horror fantasy uh, in a way that is uh, fun and interesting? This is from uh, Jeremy French. I think uh, using food and fantasy is uh, good because it gives you an opportunity to uh, stage set to sort of, describe what the the village is like or the town or the city or wherever you are. And if you're going into the tavern, it might be worth taking a little bit of time to start and say, what do you want to be on the menu and what are you settling for given this uh, rude, terrible tavern? Or what do you think is on the menu and what are you amazed by? Because this is an amazing fantasy city Uh, and and let the players sort of co-create, let them know their own character. I, I think that that is because uh, we are what we eat, as the man said, and or show me what you eat and I'll tell you what you are is a brilliant sovereign, I think. So I, I think that's that's a good window into character. I think it's a fun role playing moment and it, it lets you be in the moment without just saying you're in yet another identical tavern waiting for yet another identical man and yet another identical hat to bring away a slightly different map. What, one thing that I would bring in is just that food is treasure, right? That uh, you could have a whole campaign around finding a, uh, a particular uh, uh, spice perhaps reclaiming it from the uh, uh, horrible people who ravaged your island to uh, chop down all of the uh, the nutmeg trees and uh, uh, that uh, this is important to you and your people. And more importantly, you just want revenge on them. So food-based campaign of vengeance. Vox Novanian asks, is there anything you can reveal already about the fall of Delta Green campaign that's in the works? Are there possibilities for crossover with a modern day Delta Green campaign? Robin, do you want to uh, take that or, or, or uh, that's a question for you? Yeah, it is a question for me. Um, I would say uh, I can reveal that it is uh, a globe trotter uh, in the in the model of um, uh, Eternal Lies or um, uh, Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth, that it is tied in with the heroin trade and that it is our homage in many ways to the French connection, as well as, as to another uh, many seminal uh, things from that era. It is set in 1968 and takes advantage of things like uh, the May 68, the Prague Spring, uh, the Tet Offensive, other stuff like that. So it, it has a, a historical crunch to it. Uh, you can certainly play the individual operations out of sequence or individually if you want, but I think it's more uh, effective as a, a period during which you are sent to investigate a lot of things and uncover, goodness me, no, uh, a horrid conspiracy. Uh, the possibilities for crossover, well, that really kind of depends on whether or not the characters leave enough bad guys alive uh, to uh, live down to the future and take their revenge. Um, I don't think it's a spoiler in a mythos campaign to say all manner of possibilities exist for people to live down to the future and take their revenge on you, but they do. And certainly the heroin trade now uh, is uh, just as thriving as it was in 1968. So you could uh, morph a different villain from the same source text, which I shan't give away. But even that source text left people unvanquished 
that, uh, that, that could be used. And you can certainly have someone pick it up. And I would, uh, advise you to maybe look at the, uh, mysterious, I believe it's M in that source text and his position in Abyssinia. Uh, and right now the fact that East Africa turns out to be another giant, uh, transshipment point for heroin at this point. So maybe that's your crossover. And there's flashbacks to previous people who you thought were dead, but in fact, were uh, revenanted in some way. Uh, that was a King question, so I'm going to skip down to a Robin question. Would mining the old TV show Combat be a good source or waste of time for the war section of uh, Yellow King? Um, old uh, episodic television, in general, is a great source of scenario hooks, because that was back in the day when you had a different problem uh, set up at the beginning of every episode. And so uh, I, uh, without having... Uh, dug deep into the corpus of combat, I think that would actually be a, a great source. You could probably take uh, pretty well any episode and go, well, what Carcosan thing would I, uh, would I add to that? And, uh, you know, uh, it's a great source of premises for things that uh, uh, otherwise we don't necessarily have a, a huge episodic corpus of media to draw from because uh, war movies uh, tend to be a sort of uh, often kind of broader in scope, although there, there are a ton of those that you could. Yeah, I mean, and certainly if you, uh, depending on on your on your f- uh, flavor of the wars, um, Rat Patrol is another great episodic uh, war show. And if you wanted to go in a slightly different direction, Tour of Duty, um, uh, China Beach. Uh, mash, even perhaps, if you wanted to be sort of uh, guys in the in, in in a rear area who have to uh, face occult horrors, either at a uh, R and R uh, depot or a hospital or whatever else, that can at very least give you some jump off points. But I think there's a number of of wartime TV shows, although Rat Patrol is the only other one that I can immediately think of that is actually about uh, the exigencies of a small unit um, in operations all across the front. Uh, well, we are now uh, nearing the beginning or the, the beginning of the end of our time slot, or perhaps as might uh, more uh, eloquent would be said, the end of uh, our time slot. And so uh, once again, uh, we would like to uh, uh, thank everyone for showing up for this uh, unconventional edition of uh, uh, Ken and Robin live. Uh, we are uh, looking at doing uh, more uh, Pelgrim content uh, through uh, Twitch in the uh, uh, months ahead and uh, perhaps uh, more of uh, this format as well. Uh, Until then, you can uh, catch us at the uh, Twitter handles that we'll give when we give the outro. Uh, Also, uh, we need to plug the uh, Dracula dossier run that is going to appear in this feed. Uh, This feed is going to start uh, hosting an episode of Grand Alice's Dracula dossier. So you can see uh, Ken's brilliant uh, gumshoe uh, magnum opus uh, put into place and and in true spy movie fashion, you'll be uh, dropped in uh, in the middle of the action and have to figure it all out on your own. And uh, on that note, Ken, it's time for us to access our scripts. Hmm. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelagrain Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. So 
celebrate the bookhound in your life with our latest design, Three Points in Library Use. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>